In July and August, our country experienced a series of devastating floods. Two um, main reasons, okay. Yeah, uh, you know, one of those is uh, is climate breakdown. Mm -hmm. um, and the second reason is the, the trend in the United States and elsewhere to continually develop uh, in places that we know are in harm's way. What it what it did was it created what economists call moral hazard, which is it it, it essentially gave you an incentive to do the wrong thing, to do the unsafe thing. Oh. But what people don't know is when you know the final storm that's going to end that real estate market is going to happen. Uh, to engage in what I I I think is the largest. Uh, natural restoration project probably in the world it's certainly the largest oh wow that's it's the it's the largest climate resilience project in the world did you know that when europeans settled permanently in new orleans centuries ago they settled on natural ridges although our modern levees and other flood prevention systems failed during katrina those natural ridges weren't even flooded which makes you think Shouldn't we incorporate nature more into how we control floods? Just think of this. What if we can start living with water as opposed to fighting it all the time? That's a good line to remember, isn't it? I borrowed it from this episode's guest. Hey there, news peelers. Today is September 16, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. In August, an article by Forbes magazine explained that in this summer, the U.S. was hit by four floods that qualified as one in a thousand year rainfall event. That kind of sounds biblical, doesn't it? But wait, we'll find out what that means. The National Park Service defines a one in a thousand year event as something that only has a 0.1% chance of happening. Here are some examples. Death Valley was flooded. Is the driest place in North America. It hadn't gotten so much rain since 1988. The Dallas-Fort Worth area was flooded. It was its wettest August since record-keeping began in 1899. St. Louis, Missouri was flooded in July. The last time it received so much flood within a 24-hour period was in 1915. Kentucky was devastated by massive flood. It was its fourth wettest July. There were other floods as well, such as in New Mexico, Georgia, and Yellowstone. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the flood in Bangalore, which is India's Silicon Valley, and also the flood in Pakistan, which was way more calamitous. A third of that country is underwater now, including much of its farmlands, which experts believe will take months to dry out, 
1 million homes have been destroyed, and 33 million people have been displaced. Okay, I think we all get the picture. We've had about two months of really ugly flooding here at home and also abroad. To better understand why floods happen, what we've done to prevent them, where we've succeeded and where we've failed, and what we can do differently, i.e. learn from the past and improve, I spoke with Professor Robert Verchik. He's the Chair in Environmental Law at Loyola University of New Orleans and also a Senior Fellow in Disaster Resilience at Tulane University. He's the President of the Center for Progressive Reform and National Policy Institute focused on public health, public welfare, and environmental protection. Professor Verchik served in the Obama administration as Deputy Associate Administrator for Policy at the EPA. He has testified before Congress several times and represented environmental interests in front of the court briefs in cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as federal courts of appeals. And he has an exciting forthcoming book, the title of which is The Octopus in the Parking Garage, Beyond Carbon Toward Climate. I've read an advanced copy of this book, really enjoyed it, and of course, we discuss it in this episode. To learn more about Professor Verchik, you can visit his academic homepage the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Professor Verchik and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Verchik, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. In the last few weeks, it seems that flooding has been repeatedly on the news. New Mexico, St. Louis, Missouri, um, Yellowstone, Kentucky, Death Valley in California, Jackson, Mississippi, North Texas. <laughs> What's going on? I mean, yeah, I guess you, you're right. Yeah. Are everywhere. Exactly. So I guess a different way of asking it, if I may, for a moment, historically speaking, is this usual or unusual? Well, it's unusual. And I would just add to your list, you know, uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh oh. and China and, you know, all, all, all over the world. Um, and what we're seeing is um, is an unusual degree, I would say, of of human impact and economic impact uh, uh, ha having to do with with floods. And there are I think there are two main reasons for that. All right. And two um, main reasons. OK. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of those is uh is climate breakdown and we'll we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit mm -hmm. um and the second reason which is really just as influential is the the trend in the united states and elsewhere to continually develop uh in places that we know are in harm's way and so those two things right we have a, a bullseye uh that is human development and we've got more arrows uh uh, hitting or or aiming toward that bullseye, those arrows we can think of as climate breakdown. And even as that's happening, we continue to expand our bullseye. <laughs> so so we're increasing our chances of getting hit at the same time. And both of those things together are are what is, I think, creating this um uh this this increase in in human and economic impact. The second point that you make, the trend uh, that we keep on developing, essentially living in places that perhaps we shouldn't, it's something that I'm keenly interested in. And in the subsequent segment, we're going to talk about it. Sure. I just have one uh, 
follow-up question. Uh, is it weird that we're experiencing flood and heat at the same time? No, it, it, in fact, it is. Um, it's what you would ex what you would expect. I mean, one of the things that uh, that that there are many things, and we can talk about that that, that contribute to floods. But one of the main uh, contributors is heavy rainfall. Fall, of course, uh, cloud bursts, heavy downpours. Uh, when temperature gets warmer, when the air gets warmer, it's capable of of holding more water, more vapor, and uh, and, oh, it and expands and. That's right. It expands more water before it has to burst the clouds, if you will. Right. And so and so we're seeing larger cloud bursts because of of temperature increases. That is fascinating. So it's not just the fact that, uh, you know, glaciers and snow are melting because it's hotter, but it's also this is this is this is another factor, maybe even a bigger factor. Yeah, I, I tell my students sometimes, you know, that that with with climate uh, with the climate crisis, things are getting uh, hotter. They're getting uh, they're getting hotter. They're getting drier. They're getting wetter, and they're getting weirder. And all of all of those things can happen at the same time, you know, just depending upon what the other meteorological uh, factors are. So many side effects of climate change that are not intuitive, such as combination of flooding and uh, heat. What are some examples of massive floods in our history let's say those that happened prior to living memory yeah well we've we've always had some you know very large floods and i have to say you know looking back and thinking about that a little bit um most of them can be attributed at least in part to failed human infrastructure. Um, and actually dams are, are, are the biggest contributor if you're just looking at lives lost or, uh, or, or property damage. So uh, many people um, might re will remember studying at some point the, John the Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania, that was 1889, uh, one of the deadliest natural disasters in US history. Um, There's a it, documentary, I think, on PBS or the History Channel about it shows how the flood comes uh, and destroys people's home, I think. Yeah, and a, a privately maintained dam. Um, and there were, you know, 2,000 people died at least. And uh, uh, and they were never able to, to recover legally, because even though... The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and then oh, a, a failure people might not remember or, or know about is something called the St. Francis Dam. That was a failure in 1928 in Los Angeles, actually, your neck of the woods. Um, uh, the city of Los Angeles uh, owned and maintained a dam, and it it, it broke. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I think hundreds of people lost their lives in that. Um, in 1972, just to bring us a little closer, in the Black Hills in South Dakota, there were extreme rains uh, and and caused uh, enormous amounts of flooding. Many people lost their lives. Um, the dams and levees failures are, are big deals. And right now, um, you know, I just checked this out. Two, we have 10,000, quote unquote, high hazard dams. Uh, I'm sorry, did you say 10,000? 10, 10,000, uh, according to the American Society <laughs> of Civil Engineers. Yeah. Say that again. We have 10,000. What is 10,000 dams um, Th that, that are. That, go ahead. That, that are listed as high hazard. Uh, How is that can, okay? These can be earthen dams. I mean, they don't have to be, you know, uh, something that looks like Hoover Dam, but we're talking about, uh, and they're not all federally maintained. Some of these are private. 
Uh, and one of the problems is we just don't have very good records uh, about uh, state-owned dams, municipal dams, uh, privately owned dams. And and how can this be all right? Well, of course it's not. And one of the lessons, I think one of the historical lessons right to this, and it's an economic lesson too, is that when you have infrastructure, that is things that are shared by everyone, um, we tend to underinvest in those things and we tend to over-rely on them. Uh, and uh, and those, those two tendencies, I, I, I think, really explain many of the floods that I've talked about and including the, the, the Katrina, you know, which I went through in, in New Orleans uh, some years back. Underinvest, over rely. That that does sound uh, like a recipe for disaster. In in your forthcoming book, we'll, which we'll talk about, you mentioned the Great Mississippi Mississippi flood of nineteen twenty seven. Yeah, um, that that's that was not a disaster from what I read. And then I, your your book piqued my curiosity. I actually read it separately. Um, that was a calamity. Yeah, you know, there's a wonderful book by a friend of mine, John Barry, uh, called Rising Tide, which if uh, he's a wonderful historian, actually wrote a book called Pandemic, too, which is or Influenza, which is about, uh, you know, pandemics in, in the past. So he's a wonderful historian. Um, we've, we've had him on our show to talk. About oh, excellent. Influ- yeah. Yeah. Mr. Barry. And he lives in Louisiana. He does. He's, yeah. he's been to my house t- uh, to talk to my students. Oh, uh, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so everything I know about this, I, I know from him. But, you know, essentially uh, what, what is really interesting about the 1927 Mississippi River flood, uh, first of all, it was huge, right? You know, 27,000 square miles of, of, of land in the United States underwater. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, over 200 people died in that. Um, this was a time, right, in the early 20s uh, where there was huge racial disparity. So 200,000, you know, African-Americans were displaced from their homes. Um, and 200,000? 200,000 living in prison-like relief camps without food, uh, without good drinking water, amid disease. Black sharecroppers were horribly abused they were abducted at gunpoint they were chained they were forced to repair levies against their will recover livestock some were forced during the rains to lie down in the gaps of levees in order to uh, in order to block the flow of water i, I mean it's just a it, uh, excuse me j- j- wow, just a, i gotta have mr barry on to ha- have a whole podcast just about this Absolutely. You know, uh, wow, and, wow. and for those who like history, one of the best, uh, I'll, I'll say one of the best fictional accounts of this is William Faulkner's uh, Wild Palms, uh, which is a, a novella um, about um, about uh, prisoners, in this case, uh, white, white prisoners who were sent in a boat to, 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 to save a young woman who's uh, up in a tree. Uh, but but one of the things that's very interesting about the way he he deals with this story is he calls uh direct attention to the abuse of of uh, of blacks uh and 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 describes some of the things that i was talking about but it's true i mean it's all it's it's all documented and and the thing i'll point out uh which i think is really i mean it's not just that this was a terrible thing that happened it's that um this flood at this particular time in the nation's history um 
really changed things on several levels uh, that, that we still recognize today. How so? so? So, so politically and legally, things changed in this way. Um, it had never really been thought of before the 1920s. Uh, it had never people never really expected the federal government to be in charge of preventing uh, what we can think of as local or regional catastrophes. Really? Uh, huh. Yes. I can't think of uh, federal government not being involved now. Well, what they did, and and you can trace this back to the or to the late 1700s, is is Congress had a keen interest in um, in aiding communities in recovery. So you you know you'll know we had we had many uh, sort of. Uh, 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 um, large fires you know in philadelphia chicago san francisco mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so on in our in our history and um for the most part you know the congress would come through and they would they would uh, uh they would be lobbied uh for a lot of aid and they would provide that aid but what they you know in terms of money uh but it wouldn't be in terms of federal services and it certainly wouldn't be in terms of of, of federal money to protect against future disasters that was clearly seen as a as a local or a regional okay here's the money go activity. fix it versus having a whole bureaucracy descend yes. in that locality to help you fix it in the in the minute we have left of this segment uh, professor verchik uh, i'm wondering and i hope this doesn't come across as a silly question um do floods have common causes i mean the causes yes an overabundance of water i get that but you mentioned levees you mentioned dams is there a theme when you look yeah, at yeah yeah there is so so one one uh one attribute as i pointed out at least among the, the worst ones are infrastructure failure and for that reason after the 1927 flood um the federal government came in and said the us army corps of engineers the federal government the army is going to be in charge of protecting against floods in the southern Mississippi. And then later on in the 30s, Congress passed a law that said the federal government was going to be in charge of all levies on major interstate uh, water routes. Um, so U.S. But, Corps but, of Engineering engineers wasn't involved in this, let's say, in the 19th century. They were involved in um, they were involved in in pulling uh, local groups, uh, government and private together and um and encouraging them to build levees in certain ways but they were not in charge of building them and they were not in charge of maintaining them it was somebody else uh that changed after 1927 but as far as far as the other causes i mean heavy rains is is a huge one uh coastal storms uh with storm surge which is uh uh which is made worse by um sea level rise um sea level rise on its own is causing what we call sunny day floods in places like miami by by pushing up the water table when the when the tide comes in um, tsunamis uh, cause underwater earthquakes, and they can cause uh, huge surges. Um, and uh, uh, California and Washington State, Oregon, they all worry about that. There are histories, long histories uh, of, of tsunamis in those areas. There are actually signs on the coast, uh, watch out for tsunami and tsunami escape routes. A absolutely. Yeah. 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 And yeah. then there's something called a glacial outburst flood, which uh, is something that I, I spent some time in Washington State, and we we worry about glacial outburst floods. That is, there are glaciers that are gradually trickling out water, you know, that feed rivers, and uh, under certain circumstances, when it gets too hot, those glaciers 
inside will just sort of burp up a huge amount of water and and flood the rivers and and flood communities along them. Wow, that's really interesting. For our audience, I'll just share a, a personal um, uh, story. Uh, my wife and I walked up to a glacier in the, the Kenai Peninsula. Uh, the thing that relates to what you were saying is that it was so loud. You could yes. hear water <laughs> run through it. You had not. It was almost musical. You, we had not expected that at all, but water was running through it and out of it. Uh, so let's take a break here and then talk about an octopus. We'll be right back. Last year, President Biden included measures for green energy in his $3.5 trillion budget. Naturally, I wanted to know the history of green energy. To learn about that, I spoke with Professor Dovivier of University of Denver, Sturm College of Law. But when Jimmy Carter dedicated those solar panels on the White House, he said these solar panels could just be end up being a museum piece or they could be the next great leap for humankind, something like that, you know? <laughs> and then and then the video says um, basically that Reagan took them off the White House and they now are in a museum in China. So when they <laughs> oh, 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 in China, they are a museum not, piece. Not not in the Smithsonian? And when Mississippi and Tennessee were fighting over an aquifer. Professor Robin Craig of USC Gould School of Law explained the history of America's water rights. There's an issue in Utah now where the Great Salt Lake is drying up in part because people are intercepting the fresh water that should That's flow right, into yeah. the Great Salt Lake. And if, if that bottom dries up, it's a human health hazard. Finally, during the COP26 summit last year in Glasgow, I spoke with Professor Takash of UC Hastings about the history of U.S. and international climate change laws. What is our climate law? We don't have one. We're the only we, Western, we are the only Western democracy that does not have a climate change law. That is to say, perhaps the great, gravest existential threat to ongoing human civilization, the United States does not have a law that directly addresses that. The links to my conversations with all these guests are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Virchik. Professor Virchik, I want to speak with you about your forthcoming book, the title of which is The Octopus in the Parking Garage Beyond Carbon Toward climate this is a great title what is what is an octopus doing in a garage well i asked much same, more uh, go ahead i go asked ahead. the same question yeah so this happened uh <laughs> this happened in 2016 um in a, in a place in a condominium complex a fancy place called the mirador 1000 in miami um and it, it's you know it's a, it's a beautiful structure it has a, a, a an elevated parking garage uh that's right on the water uh and there's a guy named richard conlin uh, who lives there and he shows up one morning in his parking in the in the structure of the parking garage uh up up a few floors going to his car and he sees a big puddle of water and in that puddle of water is a big reef octopus <laughs> that's just sort of splashing around and he takes pictures Poor on octopus. Facebook. yeah 
So he put he puts fic- pictures on Facebook, and, and just so everybody understands, the, I, as far as we know, the octopus did all right because uh, uh, there was. Don't, security- don't give away the ending. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I won't tell you how. Um, uh, but uh, but this became uh, and and the reason for it, which I I I will reveal, <laughs> is that there had been a big king tide, so a high a high tide around the Miami area, and there uh, was a a storm drain that went down into Biscayne Bay, uh, into the in, into the water, and uh, when the tide pushed against that it pushed the water all the way up into this parking garage, which made the puddle. And this poor little octopus was, was, was eating, <laughs> you know, with the mouth of that, at the mouth of that storm drain underwater and got pushed up and kind of burped out. Oh and, boy. And it's a climate change story because I mean, what is happening here is the tides are just higher because sea level is higher. And, um, uh, a law professor friend of mine, Dan Farber, he's at, he's at, uh, at Berkeley. He and I, we, we, we studied this area of disasters and climate and, and he sent me this story and I, and I, and, and we talked about it and we said, oh my gosh, we have to write an op-ed. Uh, and we did, we wrote an op-ed and it appeared in the Miami Herald, uh, called the octopus of the parking garage. And, w- and what we said, <laughs> what we said is what this really is, is an eight armed alarm bell for, preparing for climate change because if an octopus could pop up in your parking garage who knows what else is going to happen exactly that we're not prepared for and then i thought well we wrote the article and then i'm like the next step is to write the book (laughs) so you know uh, as far as the book i've i've read an advanced copy of it thank you for sharing that with me um you mentioned sunny days in the last segment and now we're talking about an octopus being pushed into a parking garage by uh, tidal waves um Reading your book, it, it, it came across to me that we have two different types of flooding. I know, I know it's obvious, but as a layperson, I don't sit there thinking about these things. Right? Yeah. One is tidal flooding; the other one is inland flooding. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which one is a bigger problem now? Wow. Well, um, you know, so I'm even going to make things a little more uh, complicated, complicated. And, say, <laughs> and say that because I'm in Louisiana, and some of our inland flooding is in fact related to tides, but but even <laughs> even when it's not. Um, uh, I, I would say, I mean, if you just sort of are looking at it statistically, I would say that the bigger problems are on the coasts, uh, uh, which isn't to say that that we shouldn't be very concerned about inland flooding because we could. And and one of the reasons I'm very interested in inland flooding is because that's that's where you tend to see more uh, economically depressed areas and also many communities of color. So when we're talking about inland flooding, you know, often people think, well, if you're living Kentucky, on the coast, Mississippi. Yeah, yes, right. Or or it's the interior of New Jersey and so on. Yeah. So sometimes people say, well, if you're living on in coastal New Jersey, you have enough money to, you know, to to take on a little risk. But a lot of those inland floods in places like New Jersey and New York and so on are are, you know, happening to people who really really can't afford uh to, to deal with it. In Florida, um, a quarter of all residents in Florida uh, are are at risk of some form of flooding. Um, and uh, a according to my, a quarter. So three <laughs> and a half million of those people are on the coast and one and a half million of those people are living inland. Um, so which one is a more difficult problem to solve? 
inland flooding or tidal flooding? I think tidal flooding is probably harder because you have more variables. Uh, first of all, uh, that's where you're likely to have cyclones and and uh, or, yeah, or what we call hurricanes in the United States. Um, and, and that adds another layer of wind and not just wind, but water and also storm surge, uh, which is uh, is something that is at times hard to predict. Um, so all of those things happen on the coast, right? Um, now, when you go inland, uh, what is what is hard is you've got um, you've got a lot of areas where uh, people have been building uh, under having having confidence in these levee systems. So, if you look at places like the St. Louis area, which are inland, or Kentucky, um, uh, or some of the inland areas of Sacramento, right, where you have uh, the second largest levee system in the country in Sacramento, a lot of those wow. areas they were originally uh, developed as agricultural land, and the levees were built to protect that agricultural land, to protect cows, right, uh, and and livestock. And so the money that went into those dams was not the kind of money that you would put into protecting uh, residential areas. And yeah, so just a major to, metropolitan area. Yeah, so just to freak you out, I mean, most of the levees in Sacramento that, that are protecting areas that, that you and I probably know pretty well, those residential areas, um, those levees are not even built, many of them, with earthquakes in mind. Uh, I mean, they were. Oh, they were that makes built. me feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah, I mean, Northern California <laughs> earthquake country. They they were built to protect horses and cows, uh, and then people came along later. You know, um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and in Sacramento, there's a disparity in in housing prices. There is an area, and I I forget the geography. I think it's west northwest or something like that. Um, that real estate prices are a little bit lower because it's flood prone area. Um, so um, your story really resonates to everyday residents over there. Um, speaking of real estate, I came across a few passages about real estate and seawater level zones in the advanced copy of your book that frankly, I had to read twice because you were, it was just so crazy. You were describing what happened to home sales in Florida in 2013. What's odd here is that while home sale volume decreased, home sale prices did not. Uh, and in another page, you write, uh, gazing into the future, property values in much of the region seem to be mumboing on a bubble. Tell me about this. Yeah, and I was referring uh, to to some work that uh, a guy named Philip Mulder, uh, who's an economist at, at University of Pennsylvania, um, uh, who has actually done the the work in this area and and reported on the on the outcomes that you point out. Yeah, I think what is happening here, and if you go to Miami, incidentally, it's not going to surprise you. I mean, there's still cranes in the sky. You know, people are building um, these. Uh, um, uh, office office buildings and, and residential condominium complexes and so on. And I think what is happening is that people understand that there is sea level rise and climate and that these are precarious places in which to live. But what people don't know is when, you know, the final storm that's going to end that real estate market is going to happen. Uh, and so as that's long, ominous. Yes. 
and so as long as you know if you're a developer of condominium complexes you might think to yourself you might say well you know it only takes me 10 years to get my money out of building this uh and so I can build it. <laughs> and and you might think that, you know, maybe you're a person who wants to, whose dream it is to have a, a house on the water, right? On the beach. And you might say, you know, if if I buy this and I get 10, 20 years out of it, I'm good. You know, uh, the problem is at some point, what, what economists call the price signal is going to come into the present, right? It, it, so it's it, right now, people still want to buy some of those properties uh, uh, because they say, oh, they're, you know, it's beautiful and I'll just take the risk. It's worth it. I'll have 10, I'll have 20 years, I'll have 30 years, whatever it is I'm going to have. But at some point, either the insurance is going to get so expensive uh, or the day-to-day -day inconvenience is going to get so expensive that people are that that people are not going to be willing to pay top dollar anymore, and then your price is going to start to slide precipitously. And so when I say mamboing on a bubble, everybody knows that bubble's going to burst. Everybody knows at some point that land is going to be unsellable, uh, but we don't know when that point is going to be. And and until that point happens, it's awfully nice and beautiful there. So your choice of words here, mumbling, really makes sense. They're really partying it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a party. Yeah, it's a party. We'll be back after a short break to talk about if and how we can engineer our way out of floods. We'll be back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right, for the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Verchik, you, you, you mentioned this topic several times, so I'll just ask the question directly. Are we Americans living in flood-prone areas that should not be human habitats? Oh, definitely. We have people living in places um, that shouldn't be. Uh, and um, and the real problem is, uh, it, particularly for people, I, I think most, most of the problem has to do with people who don't have a lot of options. Um, poor areas. Uh, well, some of the rich people in, in, in Florida, you told me, it seems like they have a lot of a lot of options, right? I think they they do see it that way, and some of them even self insure, right? Even some of them the 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 insurance is just prohibitively expensive, and so they just sort of leave the the flood insurance market. Um, what what's really hard though is uh, for poor people or working class people who are living in Texas, who are living in inland Mississippi and Louisiana, mm -hmm. um, and their uh, insurance, their flood insurance rates are going up higher and higher and they could at some point go up so high that um that no one would want to buy their house right because it's literally not worth the money to insure 
And at that point, you've got a, a family, a household that has its its only large economic asset and investment equity poof gone and it right? can't be sold yeah and it's and its price is zero and and so that is a really big you know it's easy to say oh let's just rise let's just increase insurance rates particularly because we have insurance rates that are subsidized in some places in the United States but um but getting out of that is really hard it means buying people out it means it means having government programs um that are literally you know, and and we have these, but they're just on small scales. Where where the federal government in some cases comes in and says, "Look, l- let us just buy this place from you, and and you can go live somewhere else." So, since you answered yes to that question, that we are in fact living in habitats that are flood prone, have federal and state laws and programs you just mentioned subsidizing insurance incentivize this? I asked this also in the historical context, Professor Virchik. Was there a time, let's say, I don't know, I'm just picking a date out of half, like 1870, 1830, that people would say, well, no, no, that's a flood prone area. We're not going to live there. But now that's changed because they think they have a backstop insurance. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm talking to you, as you know, in New Orleans, and uh, and I live in an area that's called Uptown. And my house was built over 100 years ago before the levees were here. And um, and it has what before we call the levees were there before the levees were. Here. Oh, wow. OK, so um, and we're believe me, I know this. We're two feet above sea level where I am uh, <laughs> in my neighborhood and and my house, the living area of my house is 12 feet up. And below that is a, is a basement that, you know, we store things in um, that, you know, and, and that's fine. Um, but what happened after the levees were built is that people started building on grade. And so just north of me, if you go to uh, to some of these areas uh, that were built in the 1950s or the 1960s, they were built on slab. And these are the houses that were underwater uh, when the levees Oh, interesting, for, because for you know, all of a sudden they're bold and brave. We don't need to worry about it flooding because there's a, there are the levees. Yeah, that and that's absolutely, you know, so people say, well, why did anybody, you know, uh, move? Why did any why did Europeans settle permanently in New Orleans? Right. And well, what they did is they settled on natural ridges um, that actually didn't even flood during Katrina. Um, But uh, but most of the city of New Orleans is a soup bowl. And gradually people started started building in the bottom of the soup bowl. And uh, and that's a story all over the United States and, and and really all over the world. And and when I said that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came in building these these projects after 1927, um, they actually started building these and and encouraged people to to develop right in the shadow of these levees. Lots of people made money if they owned land in those areas. They drain the swamps and they build stuff. And uh, and that really increased risk. Uh, it increased risk because we we over. Wait, did not, did I mean, they not good. see it then? Did they not appreciate the risk then, or was it just politics that hey, come on, build your home? I th- here. A lot of it was politics. A lot of it was politics, and there's a lot of uh, oh, wow. of corruption and uh, and profiteering going on, particularly uh, in the in the early mid 20th century around uh, large. Uh, infrastructure projects like dams and and bridges and and levees um and so yeah there was a lot of people making a lot of money at other people's expense 
Um, and and we live with that. We 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 live with that today, right? I mean, uh, there are ways, uh, and maybe we can talk about that. There are things we can do besides just leaving um, that can protect us better from floods, but we have to learn. I do want to talk about that. I actually, you talk at length about it in your book. Um, And in that, in the uh, advanced copy of your book, I I read the sentence that uh, stuck with me. I want to read it. Uh, You say the challenge is that the hardest questions are not about whether to act, but how far to go. And then going on in several pages, you list the types of things that we can do. And I got to tell you, it's it's a long list, Professor Virchik. Is this a possibility? Cost, politics, organizational focus. I mean, all sorts of things here. Yeah, I think... Um... So, so I, I I am not ignoring the fact that we are in a in a moment in in politics right now where it's really hard for Congress to do things and where uh, we're very polarized in political ways, even about basic things like like climate change and, uh, and don't get and, me started and, and the threat of natural catastrophe and all the rest. Um, but I am I am heartened by, for instance, Biden's. Um, infrastructure bill, a trillion dollars, right? A trillion dollars in that infrastructure bill is going um, to toward things like improving dams, improving levees, um, improving uh, natural landscapes that also protect us, like like wetlands, which serve as uh, speed bumps uh, for hurricanes. We have 100 miles of levees to the south of me, or I'm sorry, 100 miles of wetlands uh, to the south of me in New that, Orleans. That would be a lot of levees. That would be <laughs> a lot of miles of levees. We call them lateral levees because <laughs> because these wetlands um, protect New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans would not be protected without these wetlands. The, our levees could not do and it. And these wetlands were meant to be flooded. I mean, it's part of nature. It's it's part of nature, and uh, and we have uh, our wetlands. We have the 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 a quarter of all coastal wetlands in the lower forty eight are here in Louisiana. And um, and we're losing them at an alarming rate uh, for a variety of reasons, which uh, are because uh, the levees ha- have prevented sediment from moving in and rebuilding these areas, and also because our oil and gas industry has has destroyed um, many many square miles of 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 wetlands uh, without without restoring them. Uh, and now we have sea level rise and these other kinds of things. And so, but but what's going on right now is is in Louisiana we have a a coastal master plan uh, where we are committing to uh, uh, to engage in what I I I think is the largest uh, natural restoration project probably in the world. It's certainly the largest. Oh wow, that's it's the um... it's the largest climate resilience project in the world. And the idea is that over fifty years we're going to rebuild. Uh, many of these wetlands by essentially um, they're going to do a number of things, but the most dramatic and interesting is they're going to be opening up sides of our levees uh, and letting the Mississippi river flow with all of its sediment into uh, certain chosen areas of these wetlands and all the fresh water and all of that sand and sediment is going to, through a natural process, begin rebuilding those levees. 
or I'm sorry, begin rebuilding the wetlands. The wetlands. That's that's. Um, we're going to get more into Louisiana um, in a moment in the sure. next segment because this is really interesting. Your work there uh, to me. Uh, but before we leave this segment, um, let's let's go through a hypo. I know mm-hmm. you teach, you're you're a lawyer. I'm a recovering lawyer, so the the word hypo makes sense here. <laughs> so let's say I come to you uh, with a. Uh, bail of money, you know, uh, and I say, uh, with this, pick three engineering projects that you think will help prevent and protect floods. I mean, th- th- you have a long list and all of them are equally important. I get that. But if we were to pick, I don't know, two, three, which ones would you prioritize? Okay, so I'm going to do what law students do, which is sometimes called fight the hypo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm going to fight it, but then I'm going to answer it. Okay. Okay. In fighting the hypo, I guess what I would say is that um, what is really important to me and a point that I try to make in, in the book is that the process is just as important as the outcome. And so the very first thing you would want to do is not just ask me, uh, but you would want to bring in um, the community and uh, however we define that and say, what are the things that the community values the most? Are there particular uh, services that, you know, whether it's fishing or habitat for animals or this and that, is it fresh water, uh, you know, drinking water available? What are, is it, is it protection uh, of your own home? What are the things you value the most? And then through a process. That sort uh, of questions actually would have been very important to the residents of Jackson, Mississippi, right? A- drinking water. Yeah. 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 A- I absolutely. Get your point. Okay. And then, and then talking about what kind of risk are you, um, uh, what kind of risk are you comfortable with? Which is a really hard kind of a question. But zero. Can, yeah. Well, if it's zero, then you leave, right? Exactly. If it's zero, yeah, then yeah. you have to go somewhere else. Um, so, but but if you did all of that, right, and you had a group that was sort of interested in saying, okay, now I'm ready to talk about what would be the infrastructure changes that that we might look at or pay and pay for, incidentally. I think one of the, one of the biggest ones um, that I'm very interested in that I study a lot is are are what uh, we call uh, building green infrastructure or using green infrastructure. Yeah, you talk uh, about that in your book. Why Dutch is that important? Do, yeah, the Dutch do this in the Netherlands quite a bit. And what they realized, um, uh, the Dutch, I mean, they have levees, that are, they call them dikes that are built sometimes for 10,000 year events. Um, and they have realized that they cannot defend themselves from climate change with concrete. Um, what they have to do is what is is adopt what they call a a, a, pro, a program of living with water, which means that you, within your own community, you decide what areas can be inundated or flooded in a safe way. You bring canals into your city to hold water. Um, you make certain kinds of parks adaptable so they can double as reservoirs if there's uh, a heavy down. You keep permanent settlements away from those places, but you are able to use them uh, when it's not raining as beautiful parks or forests or, or, or gardens and the like. And we are doing this in Louisiana. There's a community called Gentilly. A neighborhood, uh, a working class, uh, uh, multiracial neighborhood in Louisiana that recently got a a grant uh, from the federal government of uh, over $100 million. And they're building um, 
a big, uh, what they, you can call a rain garden. It's several acres. Um, you're going to be able to have picnics there and everything during the, you know, during sunny days. Uh, if it's really raining, it's designed to absorb water. Uh, we've got uh, boulevards that are being built that have special uh, landscaping so that they absorb lots of water uh, and have sort of gutters on the side. We're, we're making grants available through this program for uh, uh, for on a needs based uh, basis for poor families to be able to uh, install their own rain gardens in their own homes or to dig up the concrete that they don't need in their driveway. Uh, and replace it with something that's permeable so that we can start living with water as opposed to just fighting it all the time. Because it, it, it's like, you know this, if you're if you're in Los Angeles, if, if you're in the surf, the worst thing you can do is try to fight the force of the surf. Oh boy. To go <laughs> with it. Yeah. Um, I really like this uh, program uh, of living with water, essentially. Letting it coming, you channel it to designated area you don't freak out you know this is going to happen and uh, you you don't exacerbate uh, the can this situation with the concrete and levees and which end up not holding up anyway um let's take a break here stay with me and professor verchik as we get into the perspective the History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Verchik, in our zeal to engineer our way out of this to prevent floods and to protect ourselves. Have we embarked on any historically disastrous policies? Have we botched it? Have we made it worse? I I think that one policy that, that desperately needs to be fixed is, is our policy of the national flood insurance program, uh, which is run by FEMA. Um, it's a subsidized uh, insurance program. Um, and although most people uh, who are insured through the program are, are not subsidized, there are a significant number of people who are subsidized and, and are living in flood-prone areas as a result. Now, this goes back to the conversation we had about living where you shouldn't be living. Yeah. And and uh, everybody agrees this is a problem. The, the, the flood insurance program is is tens of millions of dollars in debt as a result of Hurricane Sandy and you know all of the uh, Hurricane Ida and and yeah, all of this. Yeah. Um, the the what it what it did was it created what economists call moral hazard, which is it it, it essentially gave you an incentive to do the wrong thing, to do the unsafe thing. Um, uh, now, what's important to understand though is that. The idea behind the insurance program was not a bad idea. Originally, the idea was um, communities will get this subsidized insurance if they can show that they, in fact, are controlling development in responsible ways, that they're putting in the best building codes, um, that they're limiting land use in flood-prone areas to th to things you know that are that that are. Um, 
that are safer, like, uh, you know, retail stores, but not people living there, right? Would that mean that the federal government would start mandating real estate development and laws and regulations at the state level? Well, so this this was the th this was threading the needle. So the go the federal <laughs> government wasn't going to tell communities what they had to do, but what it was going to say is if you want your people to have access to this subsidized insurance program, you have to act responsibly yourself as a, as a government. Yeah, and and, and it, you can imagine what happened. I mean, the money kept coming in, uh, but. But it was really hard to inf to 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 cajole, coerce, whatever you want to call it, the local governments to do as much as they should be doing. So um, it was a problem with mismatched scales, if you will. The money was coming from the federal taxpayers, and the responsibility was imposed on the local communities. And of course, you know, no mayor wants to wants to you know, say, hey, we're going to we're going to be in charge of making development more expensive in this area. Um, and so the of federal course, government, ended yeah. up, federal government ended up paying the freight and uh, the communities ended up getting the benefit. And and we have to fix that. But but it's hard to fix because there are a lot of, as I said, working class, low income people who are now relying on these insurance packages um, for the only for for the only shot they have it, it's sort of living in a house somewhere i don't see a way out of this well there there's always a way if you're willing to spend the money <laughs> of course yeah yeah but we the, got the, into the this way, mess because we were spending money right yeah the, the way out of it um okay so one way out of it might be to uh to target certain areas and say, we're going to buy these folks out or maybe even relocate the neighborhoods in, in total uh, so that we don't disrupt, you know, the communities and you know, the community, the social connections and all yeah. of that. Another way you might do it is you might say for people who can't afford it at a certain level, we're going to subsidize the insurance. But for people who can afford it, uh, we're not going to subsidize your insurance. Uh, and that leads you know, the market to sort of move in that it's, it's a little bit like healthcare, right? You know, everybody yeah. needs insurance. Some yeah, people yeah. Uh, have more problems than others. Um, and if you are needy then, uh, or in need, maybe, uh, maybe we, we get you a subsidized policy in some way or a voucher that you can use. So people are talking about all of these things the, the problem is, is that they all cost money and, and uh, and the politicians on the coast, it's not a Republican Democrat thing. It's if you're a politician on the coast, you want this program. Yeah, of course. And, and yeah. You, yeah. And you don't want to limit it only to low income people. Uh, if you're a politician, if you're a politician, you want the middle class to prosper. Right. Yeah, of uh, course. And so. You know, California, Louisiana, Texas, New York, New Jersey, I'm naming some of the states that rely very heavily on this program. And um, and so it has, as you might imagine, a lot of um, a lot of support, even though it doesn't make a lot of economic sense. In the advanced copy of your book, there's a photo that you've taken of your law students um, from your law school paddling through Maripas Swamp. Mm hmm. Now, looking at this photo, <laughs> I got to tell you, I feel pretty cheated. 
that is nothing like my law school experience. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest, my biggest law school field trip is when we went outlining in, with my study group in a coffee shop. Uh, they sold beer too. So I guess we had that. But, uh, you know, in talking about relocating communities or you're uh, making green uh, areas that are quote unquote rain areas designated for that purpose or water, tidal water coming in. Are there any lessons from all your activities uh, in uh, Louisiana that can be exported to other states, uh, to other parts of the country? It seems like your guys are very active and sort of in spearheading uh, flood control. Yeah. So I tell, so I, uh, mm -hmm. at Loyola Alaska school where I teach here in new Orleans, we, we have a, a, a really place-based program and environment because we have so many extraordinary places, uh, good and bad incidentally. You know, I used um, to drive from new Orleans to Opelousa on I-10 a lot. I used to work in Opelousa a lot. So I would oh my goodness. see all the swamp all the time. Oh uh, yes. Would yes. I have seen Maripas swamp on I-10? It's like North. Oh, of yes. no, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and, and of course you, you protect what you love and it's important, you know, it's important to fall in love, uh, with, with even landscapes that are, that are challenged in many ways. Um, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just like people, <laughs> Nobody's, <laughs> nothing's perfect, right? Nothing's perfect now. So is um, any, are your, are any of your programs ap applicable to other regions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, that I focus on, uh, in my classes and, and actually I focus on this when I worked at the EPA too, in the Obama administration is we had a phrase, uh, called asking the climate question. Um, and that no matter where you are, what you should do is ask yourself, how is climate change going to affect or already affecting something that i care about uh and so maybe you i'm i'm from las vegas nevada so maybe you care about the desert right and yeah. so that's not gonna well we have floods in the desert or the area. san francisco bay area that's where yeah. yeah yeah you know we have uh, huge flash floods in the, in the las vegas area and, and some of them are getting worse but you, but so you say so i'm interested in flood protection or i'm interested in um in wildfires or i'm interested in 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 public health and vector-borne illness you know malaria these kinds of things yeah. and then just ask yourself okay so how is climate how might climate affect that and the answer is it's going to affect almost anything you can come up with uh and and so i think what 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 is um what is a little uh, a bit of relief in something like that is it's not like you know we don't uh we have all kinds of vagaries in the world that um, that affect our health or that affect um, the value of our property or that affect uh, our children who aren't walking to school. And this is just another thing that we are going to have to think about. Now, now it's another For thing sure. that's more expensive. It's scarier. It's all of those things. But it's not different in the sense that there are always stresses that are placed on systems this is another stress. You can ignore it, and that's going to be a real big problem. But it's not going away. It's hard to ignore. So you have to learn about it. This I say this in my book, too. I, I tell my students, LTD. Uh, you LTD. learn about something, and it could be a small thing. It just has to be something you care about. Um, you have to talk about it to other people, because most people, even people who care a lot about climate change, 
aren't comfortable talking to other people about it. So you have to talk about it and then you have to do something. And it can be something small. It can be something big. Um, you, if you, you can get involved in, in politics or go, or go to town hearings or, or find a candidate that you like. Or you can do something in your own household. You know, say, I want to build a, a, a rain garden, which is something I did in my backyard with the help of a landscaper. Oh, um, boy. You could put in, come and take a field trip there. You could put in <laughs> rain barrels, you know, uh, uh, and experiment. But, but don't be afraid of it. Uh, don't be afraid of it. Um, you need to have have some hope and and know that you can do something to make things better. Okay, going back to LTD, learn, talk, and do. I can't help but to uh, read uh, a short passage from your book, and I promise everyone this is the last one. <laughs> um, you talk about doing something and then talking and pick a politician to talk about. So let me read this. According to current trends, my congressman is literally going to see the majority of his district fall into the Gulf of Mexico, but he's unwilling out of concern for job loss to do what it takes to slow, to slow the destruction. I mean, this is crazy. It's hard to believe. And, and because of that, that is hard to believe. Perhaps it's also easy to sort of brush aside, sort of discount and disregard, right? It's just so colossal that half of my district is going to be underwater that you just sort of ignore it, right? It's a very human thing. I mean, I, I, you're in California. Think about the big one, right? The, the big earthquake, right? I try and, not to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and at some point you're just like, oh my gosh, if I thought about that, I'd never get anything done. I'd never wake up in the morning. Exactly. And, and, and so I guess my point is, is we, it, it, we need to um, we need to face this in increments, right? We need to we need to take it at, in small bites, um, and yeah, I mean we're not going to work we're not going to get world peace overnight, but that doesn't mean that we don't think a little bit about about making peace in in certain places uh, um, and making you know our own communities safer and more just. And and it's the same. I really think it's the same thing with climate breakdown. Uh, we're in this reality, uh, and you know, we just can't uh, avoid it anymore. So we might as well accept it and and move on to the work. And it's not a political thing. No, it's not. No. Professor Virchik, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, 
we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.